0: Praise God. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm super, 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 super duper excited to get in this text on this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in many ways is, 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 a, is, a, is a, a chapter or a... 1 Corinthians itself is a book about divisions, believe it or not. Um, we, we are in another sermon and we, and, and we are moving into what we would consider to be a new thought regarding Paul... In his letter to the Corinthian church, but we are still not done with the topic of divisions. Divisions runs throughout this book. Matter of fact, very uh, one of the chief reasons why Paul wrote this book was because of divisions. A lot of First Corinthians is about um, taking this problem of division under a microscope, so to speak, and examining it from different angles and different sides. So in this passage, in some ways, we are looking at division from another angle, and, being, and, and, and we're going to be forced by the time we're done to answer this question, and it, and it is this. Why do people become fixated on personality, personalities and people and rally around those personalities and people to the point of division? Now notice, I did not ask you why do people who are far from God and aren't believers become fanatics of personalities like the Kardashians, for example, or Beyonce, or Real Housewives of whatever city, or TikTok stars, or YouTube stars. No, rather I am asking why do people, which means I'm also asking why do Christians do this? Why do Christians have a celebrity? problem is what I'm asking why are Christians not content with the Christian wisdom that's around them or the Christian wisdom that's near them or the Christian wisdom that's in front of them why, why, do, why do we have to look to those with large followings to validate whether or not the message is right or good or true there are many reasons or many answers to that question why Christians have a celebrity problem The same celebrity problem that we see in the world. But one reason is because of two simple lies that we often tell ourselves. And it's it's this. The first lie is this. The more people a person has following them, the more valuable their words are. The more money a person has behind them, the wiser their words are. The more charismatic a person's personality is, the more godly they are. In other words, the more talented, the more gifted, the more well-spoken, the more wealthy, the more charismatic, powerful a person is, the more credibility we give them. And the second lie is tied to the first. And it's this. If we align ourselves with them, we ourselves will become more valuable, more powerful, more wiser, more nearer to God. We gravitate to these personalities because of all the illusions of power and strength and wisdom that we see in them and we gravitate to them in hopes that we ourselves will eventually see ourselves in them and others will see them in us. Let me say it another way. We have The same problem with celebrity inside of Christianity as we do outside of Christianity because as believers, we too often see the world through the same lens as unbelievers. Their wisdom is our wisdom. So when they say the powerful and the wealthy and the charismatic and the popular and the uh, philosophically brilliant are the only ones worth following, then we say yes and amen. And we either fall in line with that thought or we follow those that that they are following or we create our own Christianized versions of this with the same ingredients but with just a little biblical knowledge sprinkled on top of it. Does that make sense? And this is why we hear these calls in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. Because they're convinced that, that who they say they follow speaks to who they actually are and who they wanna be known as. And who do we wanna be known as if we're honest most of the time or sometimes? We wanna be known as the really smart people. We, we wanna be known as the really strong people. We wanna be known as the really powerful people. We wanna be known as the really charismatic people or the really gifted people. Why? Because they have ultimately bought Corinth has ultimately bought, and we have ultimately bought into the lie that these are the only people that have value. Into this mentality, Paul brings us into verses 18 through 31. Paul turns all of these worldly ideas on their head in 14 verses by teaching us that God's wisdom is not only like, or is not only not like man's wisdom, but it is greater than man's wisdom. And that part of of healing divides is learning how to value God's wisdom over man's wisdom. That's how you heal divides. So how does Paul do it? First, he shows us that God's wisdom is unlike man's wisdom and is greater than man's wisdom by way of reminder. Verse 18, the first reminder comes. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. The first reminder is that we preach a message that has always been seen as foolishness to those on the outside. Here's a sobering, sobering truth. There are only two types of people in this world. People that are being saved and people that are not being saved. People that are facing eternal death and people that are facing eternal life. And there is only one thing standing in between these two people. A word. A message. Paul calls calls it here the word of the cross. The gospel of Jesus Christ. To the ears of the perishing, the message of the cross sounds ridiculous. And when you think about it, it makes sense that it sounds ridiculous. After all, if there is no God who is all-powerful and all-knowing and fully righteous and completely holy, then there is no need for me to concern myself with whether or not that God demands justice. And if there is no God that demands divine justice, then there is no threat of eternal death. And if there is no threat of eternal death, then there is no need for a sacrifice worthy to pay the penalty for the sin in my account that leads to eternal death as a result of this God that doesn't exist, divine justice. Does that make sense? If any of those pieces break down in my understanding of eternity, then the cross becomes complete and total foolishness to me. To take it a step further, the word for foolishness is also seen in Luke chapter 14 verse 34 in describing salt as useless. For the one who is spiritually and eternally dying, the one whose ultimate purpose is his or hers own glory, what use is the message of the cross? However, to the ears of those that are being saved, the message of the cross is the power of God. But how is it the power of God? Well, because those who are being saved have come to the realization that there is indeed a God, a creator of all things who is holy and who is perfect and who is just, and that though we were created by this God, we rebelled against this God. Leading us to, or leading to us facing eternal judgment, unless there is one who can stand in our place and accept the punishment. And that one was Jesus when he stood in our place on the cross. So, for those who embrace the truth, the cross is not foolishness, it's power. Because it's power that brings salvation, it's power that brings rescue to the dilemma that I have with God. Paul reminds the Corinthians that without an understanding of our need for the cross, it only makes sense that the cross would sound and appear to be foolish. So the reason that the cross appears foolish is not because people have too much information or too much knowledge. It's because they have too little information and too little knowledge. You see, they cannot see their need for a righteous substitute clear enough to see the power that the cross brings. Does that make sense? Now consider these words in, 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 um, in here, these words that we just shared, next to the words that we hear Jesus say about those who are perishing in Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter seven, verse 13 through 14, Jesus says this, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. In other words, the number of people who are perishing are many. So what does that mean for those who think that the gospel is foolish? It will be many. Does that make sense? So you have to understand that when you stand For the gospel, you will be standing in a sea of people who believe that the gospel is foolishness. Why? Because it is a sea of people that are perishing. Does that make sense to you? So don't waver then. If you find that there are not a lot of people who are willing to adjust their entire lives around this message. This message is foolishness to those that are perishing. Now, the second reminder Paul gives to Corinthians is a reminder of what God has been saying since the Old Testament concerning his wisdom versus the world's wisdom. In verse 19, he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. This passage is a quote from Isaiah chapter 29 through 14. In Isaiah Isaiah chapter 29 29 and 14, God's people had stopped listening to God and were relying on their own wisdom and their own understanding when God spoke to the prophet. And God spoke to the prophet and he basically said, I'm going to destroy their wisdom. I'm going to destroy their discernment, to display that it is not because of their human wisdom that they live, but it is because of me that they live. That's the context in which Paul is reciting this verse. God's wisdom has never aligned with man's wisdom. Never. Go all the way back to Genesis and what do we find? That it made sense to man to eat of the tree in the garden. Fast forward a few chapters and you find that it made sense to man to build a tower to the heavens trying to ascend God's throne at Babel. Fast forward a few chapters and books, and you find out that it made sense to man to crucify Jesus Christ, that it made sense to man to attempt to find eternal meaning and significance that, uh, uh, in, in, in only temporary things that are wasting away. All of these things make sense to man. For man, it makes sense then to look at the wealthiest and the most charismatic and the savviest with their words and say that this is the person who is most worthy of me dedicating my life to following. It makes sense to man. But understand something about the things that make sense to man. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 12 says that there is a way that seems right to man. To man. But in the end, its end is the way of death. There are a lot of things that make sense to man that ultimately leads to death. And Paul is reminding the Corinthians to not fall into this trap of measuring life by human wisdom, by, by what makes sense to the rest of the world. Because its end is always and eventually destruction. And Paul moves from, from Um, sharing that God's wisdom is greater than man's wisdom by way of reminder, and then he moves in verse 20 to sharing that God's wisdom is greater than man's wisdom by way of comparison. Look at verse 20 with me. It says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul begins this this passage here almost with a call to the mat, if you will. It's like he's saying, "Where are all the wise guys. Bring them all in. Those that think they're so smart with their endless debates and their oratorical skills and their rhetorical flexing. Bring them all in so that we can find out some real answers to some real questions. Real answers like, where do I find peace when there appears to be no peace? Real real answers to questions like, where do I find joy unspeakable? Real answers to real questions like, where do I find comfort at night for the many heartaches that this life is bringing me? Real answers to questions like, where do I find my purpose on this earth? How do I have an, or how do I answer, or where where do I find the Savior to redeem me from the lostness that I experience? What happens to me when I die? You see, these are real questions. And these real questions always seem to exceed the limits of human wisdom and human reasoning. None of these questions are are greater, of course, than the questions dealing with eternity. And all the scholars and all the scribes and all all of the debaters in the world have yet to figure out what to do with that question. But God has. You see, God in his infinite wisdom decided that man would never reach him through their own wisdom. And it is that inability, that inability to reach him, that that incapacity to answer the more pressing questions about life that ultimately marks their wisdom as foolishness. You see, they can't answer those questions that matter most. And because they can't answer, because we can't answer the questions that matter most, then ultimately our wisdom is foolishness to God. Paul narrows his focus in verses 22 through 25 by comparing the human wisdom of the Jews and the Greeks to the wisdom of God. Look at verses 22 through 23. It says, for Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ, crucified a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. Here's Paul comparing two very different ways of trying to get to God and understand the purpose of life. The Jews, they weren't into the ivory tower, speculative thinking that the Greeks uh, often valued as true wisdom and true power. The Jews wanted to see Concrete examples of wisdom and concrete examples of power. The Jews wanted to see signs that showed that the person that was speaking had the power to speak. Do you understand? And throughout Jesus' ministry, many of the Jewish elite were constantly asking him to perform signs to verify that he was sent by God and he constantly refused to be on their time and on their agenda, he would perform signs, but whenever they asked him for a sign, he didn't do it. Performed signs on his own own volition. Do you understand? We find such an instance, for example, in Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. It says, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation, and he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Given the expectation that they could demand a sign from the true Messiah, imagine their total dismissal of that same Messiah, when not only did he not give them a sign, but instead the only sign that he offered them was when he was hanging from a tree. Imagine how that completely rocked them. And they said, nah, that's not the one we're looking for. When these Jews saw the cross, they would not have thought, now there is a sign of blessing. Now there is a sign that we could all get behind. No, instead, they would have looked at that man on the cross and said, that man is cursed. According to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, it says, for a hanged man is cursed by God. And so therefore, they would have looked at it and said, no, that's not the one. We need to go look for another one. Now, the Greeks, on the other hand, they weren't necessarily concerned about signs. That's not what drew them in, so to speak. What drew them in, or what drew, pushed them away as it relates to the message of the cross, is that it was so unsophisticated. It was so simple-minded. It was so crude, if you will, and unattractive. How on earth can this message save anyone? They would have said all of that while conveniently ignoring that for all their sophisticated logic and rhetoric and um, oration and philosophy on constant display, they still had no answer for what ails the human soul and what could actually cure it. For all of their debates, for all of their high fluting talking, they could never answer the question, what ails the soul and what can cure the soul? So Jews with their concrete demand for signs and wonders, they miss Jesus. Greeks with their more abstract demand for intellectual brilliance, miss the savior. The sign watchers miss the Savior. The sophisticated thinkers miss the Savior. They both stumble over Jesus because neither can understand how glory can possibly come through such a gory sight. So how does one find him then? How does one not miss the Savior? The answer is technically you don't. He finds you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24 through 25. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Technically, you don't find him. He finds you. He calls you. And when he calls you, your eyes are open to see him as the wisdom of God and the power of God. Though Jews and Greeks have stumbled over this, he offers to both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Paul says in verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. How do we come to see true wisdom as it is revealed in the personal work of Jesus Christ? How do we come to see strength through our weakness? How do we come to see wisdom through the foolishness of the cross? How do we come to see power through the sacrifice of laying life down? The answer is God makes it known to us through his spirit. The wisdom of this world comes through our demanding, or the wisdom of this world, rather, comes through our demanding and taking. But the wisdom of heaven comes through an act of mercy of, as God graciously opens the eyes of our hearts to behold true power and true wisdom through the gospel. God gives us eyes to see. And when we get those eyes to see, everything changes. As the hymn, hymn writers, as the hymn writer writes, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, in poor contempt on all my pride. How does that happen? It happens because God calls. God opens the eyes to see the cross as wondrous. And once we see the cross as wondrous then everything else ceases to matter. Scholar and theologian Leon Morris puts it perfectly when he says this, the sign-seeking Jews were blind to the significance of the greatest sign of all when it was before them. And the wisdom-loving Greeks could not discern the most, the most profound wisdom of all when they were confronted with it. Why? Because God opens the eyes to see. So Paul shows us that God's wisdom is greater than man's wisdom by reminding us of what God has always said concerning the wisdom of the world versus his wisdom and by reminding us of the two destinations of all people, saved and unsaved, perishing and living, and how those destinations influence how we see God's wisdom. And Paul also shows us that God's wisdom is greater than man's wisdom by simply comparing them with one another and showing that man's wisdom has no real answers to the problems that sin and eternity pose on the human soul. Lastly, Paul shows or will now show us that God's wisdom is greater than man's wisdom by pointing to our own experience as those called by God. God's wisdom is shown in this latter passage to be greater than man's wisdom in how it is seen ultimately in his church. This last point for me is the greatest blow to our worldly overemphasis on celebrity and power and wealth and intellect. Verse 26, he says this, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Here we are normally scoring people based on all of these things, right? How brilliant they are intellectually, check. How much earthly power they possess, check, right? Whether or not they come from a special family or not, check. How much money they have, check. How much cultural or physical strength they have, check. And Paul is sitting here like, did y'all forget the people who are a part of your church? When you... when you. When you take a survey of the people that are a part of your church, it's obvious that God's calling is not based on any of that. Because if it was, most of you all wouldn't be in there. That's what he's saying. I remember, uh, I remember over 20 years, it's been 20 years ago now, there was this uh, really, really, really popular hip-hop artist who was on the top of his game and he retired. He so said he was retiring from hip-hop, and he was going into ministry. And I remember me being this young Christian, hearing the news about this really, really, really popular hip-hop artist retiring and going into ministry. And I, and I said to myself as a young Christian, and I said it to plenty of others, man, a lot of people are going to get saved now because this guy got saved. And the same thing has probably happened to many young Christians recently when they heard a similar story just recently a few years ago about a really, really, really popular hip-hop artist who was on top of their game and in the middle of it dedicated their life to the Lord and completely changed the content of their music. I'm sure many of them said, like I said 20 years ago, man, a lot of people are going to get saved now because this guy got saved. But here's the problem with that you're thinking that God picks and chooses us using the same criteria as the world does. Saints of God, God doesn't need our wealth. God doesn't need our celebrity. He doesn't need our cultural power. God took a dozen unknowns, and flip the world upside down with them. More often than not, not only does God show that he does not need it, more often than not, he chooses the exact opposite of it. The man or the woman most in the will of God at this very moment in this world could very well be someone that we've never heard of and we may never hear about. Right now, they may be quietly just simply going about their business, serving the Lord, and discipling someone, a young Christian man or woman, who will one day, uh, God will use one day to uh, prepare the way for revival. And we might not ever hear that person's story. Now, it doesn't mean that God doesn't have room for the powerful, the wealthy, and the prominent in his kingdom. We read in Romans, for example, the last chapter of Romans, and Paul says, Gaius, who is host to me to the whole church, greets you. That's a guy that has a little means, right? Has a whole house where the whole church can come and hang out and worship and, and gather together. It's a guy with means. Then Paul, he said, then he mentions another person that's with him. He says, Erastus, the city treasurer. That's a person with means, right? God's managing the money for the city. So, so it doesn't mean that he, it doesn't mean that God can't use people with means. It means God doesn't have to have them. It means that God doesn't need them in order for his kingdom to advance. It means that their status in the world holds no bearing on their status in the kingdom. It means that God's calling is not based on worldly standards. Paul said, this shouldn't be anything new to you guys. Just look at you. Just look at you. This this isn't new. The world didn't really consider you all that smart. Most of you didn't really have any real influence or real power or real wealth in the world. The world didn't even consider most of your families that significant. Some of you may be asking, Donald, Paul, why you got to be so hard, man? (laughs) Coming at these boys pretty hard. Why why is he coming at them so hard? Because it's the arrogance of them that's leading to the division in the church. Now that they're there, and now that they're following these different personalities, they're popping their collar a little bit. Saying, yeah, man, I am kind of special. You know, God uses me, man, I tell you now. Has all kinds of ways that he uses me. Yeah, man, prophecy, yeah, yeah, I'm telling you now, I got that gift. Discernment, man, listen, I can, I, man, I can tell you exactly what's going on with them. Just, just bring them to me. I'll let you know what's going on. You know, so, they, so there's a little arrogance there. So Paul is, Paul is bringing them down, right? Because it's that arrogance that ultimately leads to a divided church. It's the temptation to think that what the world considers special is what God considers special. And then to try and align ourselves with those personalities in order to be seen as special like we perceive that they are. It's that mentality that leads to I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. And so that Paul says, verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. The lesser in God's economy become the greater. The weaker in God's economy become the stronger. The despised in God's economy become the accepted. God uses exactly the very ones that the world rejects for his glory. In fact, God doesn't need the the biggest, the richest, the most gifted, the most talented. He takes the willing and uses them however he chooses to use them for his purpose. In fact, City Light, we don't have to be, we don't have to have the most talented people to make much of God. We don't have to have the most gifted people to make much of God. We don't have to have the most money to make much of God. We don't have to be the most popular to make much of God. All we need is God to make much of God. And if anyone wants to stand on on his intellect or on his gifting or on his riches or on his talent based on worldly standards, then God actually has no use of them, believe it or not. Both James and Peter testify to this truth when they repeat an Old Testament truth saying what? God opposes who? The proud, proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what about the foolish that rise to shame the wise? And what about the weak that rise to shame the strong? And what about the low that rise to shame the high and lofty? Can they pop their collar now and say, ah, y'all put me down all them years? Look where I am now. No, they can't. Why? But why can they not? Notice the intentionality of Paul's words in these verses. In in verses 27 and 28, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world. God chose, God chose, God chose. Even in verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. God called. So for those of us who want to take pride and, 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 and pop our collars because maybe at one point we were weak, but now he's used us in great, in great ways, or maybe we, were, uh, maybe we were foolish, but he has used us in great ways, we can't even take credit. Why? Because God chose. For those who would want to take pride and create celebrity out of Paul and Apollos or Peter, Paul would say, everything I've been given to lead was given to me by God for God. Why does God orchestrate it this way? Why does God orchestrate it this way? Why does God do it this way? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He orchestrates it this way so that none of us can get the credit but him. Why does he orchestrate it this way? Verse verse 30 and 31, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus' wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He orchestrates it this way. So we come to realize that it is ultimately not because of someone's talent that we are in Christ Jesus. That it is not because of someone's gifting that we are ultimately in Christ Jesus, that it is not ultimately because of someone's intelligence and intellect and oratorical skill that we are in Christ, but it is because of God that we are in Christ. He orchestrates it this way so that we no longer look to the world and the world's standards for our wisdom and our power and our redemption in our sense of belonging and acceptance and our growth and our maturation he orchestrates it this way so the only place we can turn our gaze and attention to is Jesus we can only turn it to Christ and we can o- and to Christ we say thank you To Christ we say, you deserve all the glory and all the honor. Proverbs chapter one, the, the, the man of wisdom writing to his sons, he has a introduction that he offers in the first six verses or so. And the very first thing that he tells them after that introduction, is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. True wisdom, true wisdom starts with a deep and abiding reverence of God saying that all I have is because of you. If there is anything in me worthy of any honor, worthy of any celebration, worthy of any uh, acclaim, then it is here because of you. And it is here for you. True wisdom begins with that confession. True wisdom begins with, with, with not, hey, Paul is great, Peter's great, Apollos is great. True wisdom begins with God is great. in anything and anything that even seems to be great is great because of great this great God truism is declaring hallelujah all i have is christ hallelujah jesus is my life and when we walk in that kind of wisdom unity is most certainly to follow when we walk in that kind of wisdom, celebrity is sure to die down. Let's pray. God, we love you, and we give you.